Welcome to Discography, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and if you're tuning in for the first time, ask yourself this. Do you think most modern discussions about music lack a certain fire and perspective in lieu of being coddling and accepting when clearly there's a right and wrong answer in everything music related? If your answer is yes, yes, and yes again, then welcome home. Please join our Facebook group, Discography Soldiers of Sound. It's good times wherever you look. We're on Instagram and Twitter, too. But the Facebook group is home. Home of artists, writers, filmmakers, musicians, you name it. Overall, a melting pot of unbelievably talented sons of bitches. On whatever platform you call home, you'll be privy to a never-ending flow of ongoing bonus content, giveaways, free swag, and encouraging words of wisdom on how to never, ever give up on your rock and roll dreams of maintaining a Lester Bangs-like perspective deep into adulthood. If you wouldn't mind, please pause this, actually. Join the group, and then join up on all the rest of the platforms, too. Then, and again, I am saying please rate the podcast five stars, along with a beautifully worded review, especially if you're on Apple or Spotify. It'll, It'll really help us a lot. Don't forget, the link to our legendary playlist is in the show notes and also on our website at discograffiti.com. This is an invaluable resource if, like me, you just hate listening to shitty songs. Lastly, but not leastly, a heartfelt Discography thanks goes out to Joe Cravino and my wife Jen, without whose invaluable help on the show, we would be entirely dead in the water. I care too much about this show to be entirely easy to deal with, and so also, I'm sorry. Okay, first things first. You need to know just how seriously I take this nonsense. Discography is heavily researched, and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. We're not just covering albums. No, sorry, Bob. We do a searingly honest deep dive analysis of all EPs, singles, comp tracks, relevant solo work, and bootlegs. Every release is slapped with an objectively accurate star rating between zero and five, which allows us all to come face to face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. In this episode of Discography, we'll be turning our spray cans on Big Star. The remnants of Beatle magic alchemized into the greatest, most sparkling power pop that ever was, turned the abyss that swung around and stared right back. But before we go any further here, we have a very special gentleman in the proverbial house this morning. For this young man, things took off with a shot in 1997 when he co-founded a music magazine called Rebel Root, which procured global distribution via Tower Records. That's when All Music, then called the All Music Guide, came a-calling, and they seduced our dude with a gig writing bios and reviews. In 2014 came the venerable and unerringly impressive Dangerous Minds, for whom he's to date written hundreds of articles, including several in-depth stories related to the mysterious record labels that existed solely as tax shelters in the 70s and 80s. 
In recent years, he's also written for Lethal Amounts. And last year, he wrote a Van Halen story for them that kind of went a wee bit viral, if you want to know the truth. And to top off that rock and roll Sunday, later on down the line, tonight's guest got his master's degree in library science archival administration and landed a gig at the Henry Ford Museum's archive, where he wrote some pieces for their website. The learning never ends and the mind never stops growing, a notion of which one is constantly re-reminded in this very nice badass mother effers conceptual presence. Lads and ladies of Discography Village, will you please all blurt out at once in collective wanton abandonment in an awkward attempt at welcoming Bart Bielmir. Bart? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Uh, you give the greatest introductions in all of podcasting. That's because we only have the most incredible people in the universe on the show, and they're worthy of such adulation. Well, thank you. Will you speak at my funeral? Hopefully not as soon as is humanly possible. <laughs> <laughs> so well, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I'm a fan of the show, so it feels like I'm kind of inside of a movie that I've seen several times that I like quite a bit. That's really cool. That is a, and as a listener, I know that you actually have, uh, I know you've listened to uh, more than a small handful of episodes because uh, you actually reached out to me. I did. Yeah. Um, One of the first uh, episodes where I was, uh, you know, reached out to by someone out in the wilderness. And I was like, I was so excited to get the email. I've had other pitches before, um, and I appreciate all of them, honestly. But, you know, we're trying to grow the podcast. And to have you uh, reach out was um, so thrilling. I think I emailed you back within seconds. Yeah, I, I was, you know, I was honestly surprised because when when I hit send, I thought, well, I probably won't hear from from anybody, you know, you know? <laughs> I didn't expect a response at all, to tell you the truth. And so to, to hear back from you right away, it was great. Well, I, I'd like to think it's because you think I'm a big asshole. Absolutely not. Come on. <laughs> no. Why did you expect no response? Well, you know, you put things out there and you just, uh, you know, you hope for the best, but you expect nothing, you know, yeah, so yeah, I, was just, yeah. I was essentially cold emailing you. So uh, I'm I didn't I'm, I'm intrigued because this actually without, uh, you know, without tipping the hat as to who we're covering tonight, the theme of disappointment and dashed expectation, hmm. it certainly plays into uh, tonight's uh, artist. But um, all right. So. You know, the the main change that you see now that you're, you know, behind the veil, as it were, is that Joe is not here. So Joe Kennedy, I, I started the show with uh, Joe. Actually, it was even though this is a show about my specific music listening habits, it was his idea to do the podcast. And um, uh, this is the very first full uh, discography based episode without Joe. Um and I'm curious, as a listener, uh, how that notion, you know, if, if and how that affects you. Well, you know, I was I was honestly uh, a, a bit bummed, you know, because I, I, I was, you know, again, instantly a fan of the show. And you guys obviously uh, had a really good rapport. And so even listening to some episodes, you know, after I already knew that. Um, it was yeah a little bit uh, a, a little bit sad to know that uh, you guys wouldn't be uh, doing this again uh, you know and I, and I was also looking forward to uh, to being on with both of you so uh, you know 
but you know, I, I was thrilled to, to, to hear that you're continuing. Well, I would like to apologize for the compromised experience you're about to have. <laughs> but no, seriously, like, you know, um, this has been like sort of the dark night of the soul. It's a lot of work to do this. I don't blame Joe. Yeah. Joe and I are still very, very close friends. It didn't have an effect on sure. our friendship. Um, but uh, it's a big ask. We didn't know how much work this was going to be. We went into it as pallies looking for a justification to hang out as adults. Yeah. You know, yeah. and we got that. We got a little bit more than we bargained for. And it wound up being okay with me, although still not sustainable, but okay, okay with me and just not okay with him. And that's, it just is what it is. But, um, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I'm definitely going to continue with the show. And um, great, super excited that Big Star is the first one out of the gate. Um, and you know, we promise to keep bringing you. Really, we're, we're the the thing that's king here is the format. So, uh, with that being said, back to business. Let's talk about what these guys. This is obviously a show about Big Star. Let's talk about what they mean to you, Bart. What do they really mean to you? Wow, that's a, that's a weighted question. And I guess I should say, too, before we even get started, like, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners that think, why is this guy like, what are his qualifications? And, and I'm right there with you. Um, but, <laughs> so, you're you know, I, I, so you're doubting yourself. <laughs> Well, you know, um, it's not like I've, I've, you know, written a biography on Big Star or something, but I have written several articles about them um, over the years for Dangerous Minds and uh, some, some Chilton articles as well, uh, just about him uh, uh, solo. Um, but, um, you know, Big Star, a band like uh, that I discovered the way I think a lot of people did my age. I'm, I'm 52, so I was a teenager when... Uh, when uh, the replacements uh, released the song Alex Chilton, and uh, by then you know I was head over heels for the replacements. They were my favorite band in a sense. They really still are to this day. And so I paid attention, you know. And so I bought Radio City, and I was you know instantly hooked. I don't quite remember you know listening to it for the first time or anything, but uh, you know just. The, you know the songs are incredible the songwriting's incredible the performances everything about it, it's just you know uh i think it's a, a perfect record and uh that is sort of branched out from there um and became you know a fan of chilton solo saw saw him a number of times um but um all the big star records are 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 special and unique in their own ways which we will uh yeah be talking about here today yeah well I am going to close my eyes a bit here because uh, when I discovered uh, Big Star, and this is a it has a very emotional resonance to me. Some bands they hit you at a certain time and are ineffably pulled into a strong undercurrent of a meaningful part of your life, and that's the summer yeah. of '92. So I remember sitting in my room reading, uh, I believe it was Rolling Stone back when I actually read them even intermittently um, and uh, read about the Ryko re-release of Third. That was my first, uh, you know, I'm 20 years old uh, and I'd never even uh, heard them before so or heard of them. So I buy Third and that summer of 1992, uh, was just a magical summer for me. I was 20 years old. I was in Boston University, living in Alston. Uh, time basically didn't exist. I remember the beginning of the summer, literally taking a hammer 
to my watch just to you know to exist outside of time and space as we knew it you know that summer i discovered third and then in short order discovered the work of what sounded like a completely different band uh, the preceding two albums and so let's also talk about you know discovering at 20 years old literally the perfect three album um career slash descent into oblivion so you know what struck me as a young as a young man back then was how is this the same band from album to album i mean there's a through line here but there's such a story being told here and the story is as interesting as the music um and uh, you know over the years what's become apparent to me is that if someone tells me that you know they know the obvious greats you know the joni the bobs the neils and they're interested in digging a little deeper and seeing just what's under the covers this is the first band i would introduce to someone because there'd be a zero percent rejection rate yeah yeah they're a hard band to to dislike yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. Once so, once you hear them, yeah. Yeah. So, um okay, so this is a little segment that uh, I like to call the run up. And there's not a huge run up here, but there's, you know, some interesting factoids to touch on. The first uh first thing I'd like to touch on in the run up, and the run up by the way gets us to the very first release. Uh Chris Bell. Chris Bell, who's, uh, you know, I would like to sort of focus on as as if we could pick one man in the limelight tonight, that would be Chris Bell. He kicked things off with his first high school band, The Jinx. That's J-Y-N-X. And they have a a, a release in 65, The Jinx Greatest Hits. Um, the, The cover of the 45 says, unreleased 1965 Memphis Garage featuring Chris Bell of Big Star and Bill Cunningham of the Box Tops. So... Uh, you know, Bart, why don't you actually uh, talk to us about this one? You actually introduced this to me. I'd never heard it before. Yeah, so, yeah, these are 1965 recordings from, from Chris's band, like you said. And um, Alex, actually, who had met, he and Chris had met uh, the same year, and Alex had sang uh, a few times with Jinx, um, and he was supposed to record with the band, you know, singing lead vocals, for this session, but he flaked and he didn't show. So they had to get another singer uh, at the last minute to sing on the recordings. But the, pur- the whole purpose of them was so uh, they could have songs that they could lip sync to when they were going to be uh, appearing on a local uh, American bandstand type program. So that was the whole reason for doing it. Um, and uh, yeah, so this is just a kind of interesting document of, of, of Chris's first studio recordings, although yeah. I think they're kind of, it's kind of mediocre garage rock. It is. Um, it is. Know, this, it's this, like this, you know that that sneering, nasty, uh, you know, uh, sort of chocolate watch bandy. Like like they, it's like they aimed for the Rolling Stones, and they they kind of landed on chocolate watch band. Yeah, that's yeah. We'll go with that. Um, uh, and yeah, I think in part because of the singer is kind of unremarkable. Um, and it, you're kind of left to wonder what it would have sounded like with Alex singing, you know, yeah, um, yeah. it could have been great with just with a different singer. Um, you know, even though the tunes aren't necessarily, you know, stellar, but, um, yeah, we'll never know. But, well, uh, you know, yeah. it's not, it's not canon, but I think the best track yeah. on this is, and my baby's gone. Okay. Um, so I did, I did not pick, I did not pick a favorite track, but, uh, no need, uh, no need. Okay. 
Yeah, it's all it's it's kind of all of a piece, uh, not very traceable either to the sound that eventually coalesced with our boys, um, and you nope. never place it as Chris Bell. Um, no, but still very cool. It's hard to miss when this is the sound you're going after. Um, but uh, you know, then let's cross cut here. There's another guy from '67 to '70, uh, a guy named Alex Chilton was the lead singer for the box tops who had a number one hit with a song called the letter when he was 16 years old uh there's other really cool stuff that they've done i like a, i really like a song called neon rainbow um yeah some other really cool stuff but after he left the group <clears throat> he recorded a, a solo studio album uh, he was offered the the uh the role of lead vocalist for blood sweat and tears which i didn't know until this trawl but uh he turned down the offer <clears throat> did you know that part i i have it somewhere in my memory but i did not remember uh, I mean, that so yeah I, that's a that's a crazy bit of uh yeah trivia there what's weird about it is that it's uh, david clayton thomas has such an affected voice i mean they talk, talk about yeah. going in a completely different direction um but children yeah, I mean, they were actually, probably they were probably asking him you know based on his box tops voice yeah you know, yeah that was yeah, yeah. Uh, so Chilton had known uh, Chris Bell for for some time. So they'd both lived in Memphis. Um, they'd recorded at Ardent Studios, which is a, a place that's going to be brought up many many a time during this during this uh, episode. Um, so initially, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, Bart. Was it was the first advance of one guy to another? Chilton asking Chris Bell to work with him as uh, as, as a duo sort of modeled on a Simon and Garfunkel approach? Yeah, I do think there was talk of that. Yeah, when when Alex was living in New York City, um, after he had either quit the box tops or around the time he had quit the box tops, the, the time frame is a little uh, uncertain. Uh, he was definitely thinking about leaving the box tops when he moved to New York um, and uh, formally left in, in February of 1970. But uh, yeah, there was some talk of that. And then... Um, you know, Bell, actually, Bell actually said no. That he was the one who uh, played hard to get. Which you would the the, the dynamic kind of changed a little bit later on. But um, uh, he invited uh, he did invite Chilton he did invite Chilton to a performance of Ice Water, which at the time was sort of it was kind of a band, but kind of not really a band, like a, more of a collective of whoever was around at the time. So it was. Uh, I think at that moment in time, it was it was Bell, Jody Stevens, who was the drummer and bassist uh, Andy Hummel, which was big star, except for Chilton. So uh, Chilton liked the music and showed the three of them his new song, Watch the Sunrise. And that was pretty much it. He was asked to join the band. So uh, subsequently, you know, the, the all the songs he brought to the table were included on that first record. But yes, it was really Chris Bell's band at the outset. Yeah, totally. Um, and then, so what happened was that they agreed to work on a project together. Chris and Alex did. Um, you know, it wasn't named Big Star or anything yet. It was just they were going to do something together. So um, I'm not sure if we're really jumping ahead. We're sort of jumping around a bit, I guess. But um, uh, Chris started this thing called Rock City, which was really meant as a way for him to, in part, get his uh, engineering chops up um, to work on this, you know, unnamed uh, Bell Chilton project um, because, um, you know, Chris Bell had learned a lot 
um, already at that point about engineering from from John Fry, the let, yeah, let John uh, Fry, the, the owner of the owner of Arden. I mean, w- wouldn't you say he's probably outside of uh, the band itself? John Fry's got to be the most important guy in the in the Big Star saga. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the transference yeah. of Beatle magic from the Beatles to Big Star would not have been a possibility had it not been for John Fry. No, he was really their George Martin, and you know, you know, if you're going to say fifth member of Big Star, he he he'd certainly be it. If you don't mind, before we get into the meat and potatoes of of the sort of ardent in-house engineering uh, trial by fire school, if we could talk about, um, you know, the 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 two roads that converged in that space. So let's talk about uh, Alex Tilton's Free Again, the 1970 sessions, and Chris Bell's Looking Forward. Then let's get into to Arden. Um, yeah. So, so uh, you know, uh, we're sort of jumping back here, but, um, you know, we are now at the point where they are big stars. So phase one, watch the sunrise, 1969 to 1972. 1970, Alex Chilton free again, the 1970 sessions. 1970s in quotes, because I think this stuff was actually recorded mainly in 1969. He was in the, ba- he was in the box ops for a very short period of time. And so what, well, what what happened there? So because you know his experience there certainly colored his reaction of uh, you know what occurred in Big Star. Well, yeah, it was relatively short. It was a few years, but you know, for him, he was since he was only sixteen when the band started. That was you know kind of a long three four years for someone that young. And they did so much touring. You know, he they did like you know two hundred plus dates a year. And uh, you know, Chilton just sort of looked at it as a slog after a while. And uh, you know, he really wasn't given much creative freedom at all. Um, you know, well, the, all, all the he producer. really got was hastily recorded B sides, right? That's the yeah, bones. That, that's all. That's the only bones where they would throw him. And I, so at least he got you know some some royalties from that from, right. from those B sides. Um, uh, you know, but um, he was frustrated and he he was worn out. You know, he and he was just tired of the grind. You know. Yeah. Uh, so he, so he decompresses by by coming back to Memphis, uh, really kind of holing up in Ardent Studios with John Fry and and another name that's going to pop up, uh, not always in the best light as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I can't wait till we talk about. <laughs> but uh, the engineer Terry Manning. Uh, yeah. So these guys are psyched to work with Chilton and Chilton at this point, he kind of doesn't know who he is. He's trying to find his way. And it's interesting. The sessions, they're very casual, very low key. And it's a full album of material that was never released until very like 10 years ago. Right. Well, the sort of sequence of it is in 85, a few tracks came out on a compilation called lost decade. Um, which uh, incidentally is the only Chilton related thing I, I, inter- I review for all music. Um, and then in 96, Ardent, or, uh, revived Ardent uh, Records released um, a version of it on CD with, with more tracks. And then Omnivore in 2011 did uh, you know, a full on full CD with uh, you know, alternate mixes and takes and such. So that's now the, the, the definitive version of it. There's interesting stuff, and then there's stuff on this that is absolutely, totally uninteresting to me. So, um, you know, this is, he's a kid. He doesn't know, uh, 
really kind of what he's doing yet. He's got maybe, I would say maybe half of this, maybe a little less than half uh, is, is, uh, is really interesting. There's a couple of great songs. The best track is the EMI song, Smile For Me. Oh, that's interesting. You think it's that one? I I think that's a great song, but um, to me, "Free Again" is is the standout. "Free Again" is cool, but uh, you know what I don't like? The and it, and by the way, it's so perfectly indicative of Chilton. Is that yeah. um, okay? So now that we've got. Uh, you know his exploding out into coming into his own his vocals are just they're weird it sounds wonky rough hewn thrown down like a guide vocal uh and disproportionately unpretty next to that fucking ripping pedal steel well yeah and he's like you said he's trying to find his footing really and and his voice because his box stop voice um you know is not really his natural singing voice as you know we right, hear with right. big star he was he was you know uh i guess it's there's debate about whether he was actually coached or not to sing that way but i i believe that he was you know he was coached to sing like a, a much older man um and you know in fact a lot of people thought he was black thought that he, you know they thought big star was like an old soul band basically uh or yeah. the box tops were when, when when they when they hit with the letter there's not a lot of big stars so what look you and i have gone through and and had way more than any discussions I've had with any of our guests yet about how best to shape this because we care. We really yeah. we really care about how this turns out. Even if I knew there was going to be no listeners, uh, I could never live with myself knowing that I didn't do the ultimate podcast on Big Star. And I'm, I don't have to ask you to know that you feel the same way because you have a hologram cover of their Satanic Majesty's request on the <laughs> you, and you're wearing a T-shirt of the of the Psych Hard Rock Private Press masterpiece Stonewall, which goes for thousands of dollars a copy even if if your if your version skips you get yeah. thousands of dollars so i don't need to ask you moving moving right back into this it isn't <laughs> what i like about this record is that uh there's there's aspects of it that are very open-hearted and vulnerable and we don't get that kind of glimpse into chilton ever again it isn't always that easy all we ever got from them was pain these are really good songs and they're presented in a way that doesn't obfuscate the point so you get a real direct glimpse into him so ultimately uh mostly the record i think is a is a revelation in terms of who brought what to the table as the introductory assemblage of the building blocks that started coming together for big star um, but I'm really actually was shocked in terms of the level of pastiche on display here because it's similarly tossed off as his later Who Gives a Fuck records. I would characterize uh, the 1970 record as of historical interest mainly a sack of shit that intermittently spits out a bright and shiny banger. I give it two and a half stars. I mean, I think it's a really fun record. You know, I. Uh We've discussed previously how you feel about Chilton's solo material, I, and I'm I'm a, really a fan of it. And I, I do think it's a fun record, and you know I I will admit that uh, his songwriting certainly improved uh, by leaps and bounds very quickly. Um, but uh, you know I I think the songs are pretty together. Like um, it doesn't really have that tossed off feeling to me. And did you say? Did I mishear you? Did you say we never see him this vulnerable again? 
not this vulnerable not even in oh. big, even in big star when he's vulnerable uh this is explicit vulnerability you know it isn't always that easy it's almost like uh the song titles are adages that's interesting because i think you know he can be quite vulnerable uh on the big star stuff um uh, but the one you singled out yeah all we ever got was pain um yeah, it's kind of an intense one. In fact, that's the one I can kind of imagine on Big Star's third. Yeah, totally. Um, totally. That would be great. Uh, yeah. Um, so I have a, so my, for my very first rating on Discography, I give it three and a third stars. Oh, dude, I love you. <laughs> you know how I feel about it. You know the quickest way to a man's heart if he's hosting a music podcast is resort to Bizarre Fraction. All right, so... 19, moving along, 1969 to 1971, we have uh, a, a, a CD, whatever the hell it was initially, that, that came out called Looking Forward, The Roots of Big Star. And this encompasses Ice Water and Rock City. So Ice Water, just to differentiate here, Ice Water came first. Ice Water wasn't really a band. It was more like a rotating collective of whomever. Rock City was a specific project run by Chris Bell and singer Tom Eubanks. In fact, the later 1970 to early 71 Rock City sessions, they morphed right into those for the just born big star uh, because you have Jody on drums and Andy on bass. Uh, although Andy didn't play any bass on those actual recordings. The, the record was going to be called C7 States and features the very first Bell Chilton composition, which is an early version of Try Again. Uh, it was a quasi-rock opera. So uh, Eubanks apparently shopped that shit around to no avail, but Rock City was the springboard for Big Star. And in Bell's mind, it was also a dry run for working with Chilton right around the bend. To me, this is a more interest than the Chilton stuff. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I like some of this stuff. Um, you know, and of course, there's the, the early versions of My Life is Right and Try Again, which both were the basis these actual recordings were the basis for the ones they used on number one record so they just so the, actually the, the songs on number one record the versions are the rock city versions they're just augmented um on there so you know of course those are great songs um a lot of the stuff doesn't really stick with me um i will say also ice water was kind of a real band they did play shows um they did you know rotate members like uh, seemingly seemingly like most chris bell early chris bell bands did and also to be clear it's not just ice ice water and rock city there's also other right. fly by night uh, outfits that he had from the time like christmas future uh the wallabies is another one that you kind of hear about quite a lot that's on here um yeah those are the main ones there's like four bands on here that's all chris bell stuff um, well, it's actually it's actually not entirely, which is weird because it's it's credited to Chris Bell. But there's a couple songs that he doesn't even not even on appear. Yeah, he's not even yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. And like the the Wallabies thing wasn't even a Chris Bell project. In fact, the guy behind that doesn't even remember meeting Chris. Um, <laughs> That's hysterical. But, but but Chris does play on those on those Wallabies recordings on there. And there's also uh, you know for historical uh, trivia or whatever here that. Um, the song Psychedelic Stuff, which, you know, isn't really much of a song. Um, it's the first thing Chris ever recorded at Arden. Oh, that's cool. That's great. 
you yeah. know, I, I feel bad saying this, but the they're my two favorite songs on the record. One of them is the one that Chris doesn't appear on. The Wind Will Cry yeah. For Me by Rock City is very beautiful. Um, but the other one that I really like, uh, I Lost the Love by Rock City. Killer early power pop. It's kind of a, yeah, proto raz. I thought of raspberries, too. Yeah, when, yeah, yeah. When I was listening yeah. to that song. So, and they, it's, it's uh, I think raspberries hadn't even quite existed yet then so it's you can you can call it proto raspberries i think proto raspberries eric carmen would certainly like that descriptor um all i see is you is another good one this is um uh kind of rem- uh is redolent of the beatles uh circa yes it is that sort of pillowy harmony kind of a thing I mean, over, overall, it, it's on a similar level as Chilton. It's nascent. It's not necessarily, I wouldn't call it of historical interest. It exists on its own merits. But as far as the pre-Big Star talent pool, uh, you know, of the late 60s, early 70s, uh, for my money, Bell had Chilton eating his dust, but there was still a long way to go. Um, so uh, this is all sort of a trial and error hunt and peck. But uh, even the stuff that doesn't work on the Chris Bell thing is interesting. And it's a hell of a lot closer to the big star template than Chilton's thing. I give it three stars. I gave it the same three stars. Yeah, it's an interesting. I think it's interesting for big star fans. I'm not sure if there's really anybody else who'd be much interested in this stuff. But yeah, Agreed. three Agreed. stars. Uh, okay, now I can't wait for this, even though this has nothing to do with Big Star. So the engineer, Terry Manning, uh, wound up making a solo record in 1970 called Home Sweet Home. Uh, Chris Bell plays on it. You know, a lot of the same uh, dudes who are hanging around Arden wound up laying down tracks on everything, including this. You, uh, you know, you are a wonderful human being because I'm always the, the guy who's like, oh, and I forgot this record. Oh, and you got to listen to this one. It was never the guest doing it to me, and it's a dream situation for me. So I'm lapping it up and eating. Well, we'll turn nightmare because <laughs> not at all, not at all. No, the, the, the first, the first song I know. Uh, I love a I bad record. About, yeah. I love a good record. Okay, so first to you know to to lay down the gauntlet here, Terry Manning produced, engineered, uh, and except for drums, handled most of the instrumentation. Again, of course, Chris Bell is on it as well. So. Now let's talk about that ardent Petri dish. So by 1972, Big Star... Uh, oh, by the way, I hate Terry Manning's record. It's it's an N.A. as far as um, <laughs> you know star ratings go. I would give it a half star just for the balls to... Ooh, I'm... Oh, yeah, okay. I hated it. I might go... If we were doing this for real, I might go as high as four. Holy crap. All right, so the ardent Petri dish. By 1972... The band had secured a record deal with Arden, uh, who had just signed a distribution deal with Stax. Okay, so let's talk about this setup, because this wound up sounding totally cool and being completely uncool. Uh, from all appearances, this was the only move to make. Um, John Fry was not only, uh, you know, was, was the owner and founder of Arden and, uh, and the studio while he was still in high school. He moved his stable of talented mother effers with him, including Jim Dickinson, who's a legendary figure, and Terry Manning. Led Zeppelin had recorded some of the three record there. Leon Russell and ZZ Top became fixtures. Um, and then Fry wound up giving a sort of in-house engineering course. And early students included Chris Bell and Andy Hummel. This was, Big Star was a studio-hatched creation. 
That's why it glimmers and it glows and it's timeless. So, uh, you know, right across the street, as they would stand outside on whatever, on smoke breaks or what have you, a local grocery chain uh, that was across the street from Arden gave the band its name. And I think we can all agree, it's not only a great name for a band, but the ironic distance between what happened and their name makes it way beyond even a perfect name. It's just, it's uh, stamped in amber. So the setup is open access to Arden, uh, Arden owner John Fry Engineering, endless hours off the clock. Chris Bell was the McCartney figure, Chilton was the Lennon figure, as far as not just melody, but production approach and the whole the whole deal. So the Beatle baton really was passed uh, and it couldn't even possibly fail, not by a long shot, seriously. How could this conceivably go wrong? Record number one, or should we just say number one record, 1972, released in, on April 24th, 1972 by Arden, number one record. One of the greatest debut records of all time. Absolutely. I mean, it's I mean, it's a beautiful, melancholy, upbeat, wonderful rock and roll record. It right? should have been. Uh, it should have been. You know, it should have gone diamond, but it actually sold fewer than ten thousand copies when it was first released um, in the late. 70s. And a lot less than that. I think it, it might have been less than five thousand. Less than five thousand. Yeah, which yeah. is absolutely insane. I mean, now, uh, you know, it's 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 always ranked as uh, one of the greatest albums of all time, but only because it is. This is the only big star album on which uh, Chris Bell is actually credited as a member. Uh, even people who are big star fans don't really. Uh, a lot of them aren't cognizant of that fact. He had a major hand in the record through the songwriting, the vocals, guitar work, the production. He's not there on the future stuff. So this has a very different character to it. Yeah, absolutely. Like you were saying earlier, it was his band. It was, you know, really, he spearheaded the whole thing. And uh, yeah, but I mean, he and Alex have just, uh, there's kind of a yin yang thing going on with those two. Uh, and their songwriting because they did you know they brought songs to the table individually but they did do some collaboration in fact chris later said he was the only alex was the only person that he could write with um so they did do some working together but yeah i mean alex brought um uh baldwell goodo and uh i think he should like he said watch the sunrise yeah and were a couple of tracks that he brought yeah he, i mean you know it's it really is kind of back and forth with these guys bell had feel in the street uh, don't lie to me. Um, my life is right. Try again. I mean, they're both. They brought a lot to both of them. Brought a lot to the table. So, yeah. I, I mean, in the street though, in the street is actually Alex's song, but Chris sings it. That's the only one oh, on the okay, album okay, that, okay. that was primar right. primarily written by somebody else. That you know, somebody else sang. So, and then let's, not, much, let's yeah. also not forget the India song was Andy Hummel, and the reason I'm singling that out. It's always been one of my favorite songs on the record. One of the things oh. that is just so crazy about these guys to me is that when the guys who aren't even uh, you know known as the legendary songwriters when they step up to the plate it's always with a great song well you know i have a lot i have a lot uh, to say about the india song because um 
for me, it never quite works. Um, it seems like it sort of really sticks out on the record because it doesn't sound like anything else. I don't think it's a particularly good song. I think it would have been a fine B-side. Oh, um, my God. I would seriously... I would engage in a physical altercation that would be an arrestable oh, offense right now if we were in physical. Dave. This is, well, no. It touched a nerve. It's a, yeah, I mean, it's just always <laughs> been a, it's a special one for me, even though I will grant you the fact that it is sort of a generic, lyrically generic, etc. But let's let's actually just walk through this one, uh, yeah. you know, slowly and, and look at this. So uh, the way that it starts, because this album is really worth it. Uh, th this is not just an incredible album. It is one of the greatest, probably in the top 10 of all time, not probably, debut records ever. So side yeah. one, track one, the song Feel by Chris Bell. We kick off with a rocker. And those 10 foot tall descending harmonies, just a top shelf ass kicker and a terrific red herring when the, the album winds up devolving into folky rumination toward the end. Yeah, it's one hell of an opener, right? I mean, in an ideal world, this would have been a AM radio smash hit. I mean, it's just, it's even got the stacks, the stacks influence there with the, with the horns and the and the sax and, uh, but yeah, it's it's also like you know like a lot of big star stuff. It's kind of deceptive because it's a very up tempo track and then it slips into the you know I feel like I'm dying, never gonna live again. You ain't just been trying. It's getting there very near the end. You know where it's kind of a more melancholy passage and then it, you know kicks back in again um but uh yeah an, an incredible opener that uh yeah just love that really song. solid opener um and then ballad of el goodo uh we go into uh, that's chilton's first appearance songwriting wise on on a big star record and it's a total classic i mean here's where the sweetness is dolloped on in great big gobs you know even if you're not listening intently to it these these little lyrical passages that fly right by you, they stay with you forever. Uh, ain't no one gonna turn me round. This one seems to be about Alex's experiences with the big, with uh, with the box tops, um, and the first of many uh, defiant Alex songs um, that we will get over the years. Uh, but yeah, just the guitars are just gorgeous, gorgeous harmonies. It, it really it yeah. feels like you know the stars up in the sky. It really is just very very beautiful uh, obviously this is a you know john fry uh terry manning influence thing because i know guitars you know most of the guitars i hear they don't sound like that yeah i mean t t uh john fry is really giving credit for for that um uh, you know that, that that shimmering sort of yeah and that and that the heavenly sound of 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 the harmonies and all of that um but let's not forget jody's drumming either yeah like, he's in crazy perfect for them and he his drumming is so great that they're almost like the, his fills are almost like little hooks yeah um like you can't imagine the songs without them and that that particular song the ballad of el goodo he said that um he basically just learned that on, he played that stuff on the fly um so those parts are pretty much you know what he was playing the first time he heard the song huh. that's very impressive uh yeah. the next song is probably the most famous song on the record because of its appearance on that 70s show uh in the street uh, written by chris bell 
and initially the b-side to their first single when my baby's beside me um so this well, is written by alex but sung by chris sorry that sorry uh i have this i have everything listed here by vocalist and i'm mistaking it as singer just in case you think uh, i'm a complete and total idiot um I, that, and that, that i've lost all credibility <laughs> um <laughs> all right so and just as a song this song it's always been one of my favorites on the record it's always yeah. been kind of a soundtrack to being young and totally. you know, if yeah. you're a, if you're a listener of the show then you're already familiar with the idea that i love the artistry behind coming up with a great lyric hook before a guitar solo and wish we had a joint so bad is in the top 10 of all time yeah, and I mean the song has yeah, total anthem for suburban teens. It 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 makes sense that it was you know, it's a perfect uh, theme song for that '70s show. Um, and then yeah, those those uh, guitar those changes in the songs the the guitar uh, chord changes are it's like total power pop. To me, it's probably the most power poppy of all the big star songs. Even though they get credited a lot as being like a proto power pop band, but um, the song specifically, I think, has. Is very power poppy and then yeah the song just you know sparkles it's just it really does it does sounds sparkle. phenomenal yeah and, and 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 you know that little passage right after which we had to join so bad that particular sparkle always felt redolent to me of right after having smoked the joint that's sort of like stars on the periphery thing um you know just and chris, chris was very into he and he and andy were really into into smoking pot now, i thought um, so, all of them uh, were weren't they all or no i i don't know that jody got too into it but yeah i think probably they all dabbled um at least but uh uh i'm not sure about jody but um yeah I think pretty much every picture i saw in the 70s uh when i was doing research on this of jody he's holding some kind of beer in his hand no oh, okay yeah that yeah. might have just been his uh alcohol been his drug of choice um, yeah. all right so then next up we have 13. uh 13 for me uh that's a chilton song of course uh released as a single with watch the sunrise as the b-side which holy crap what a single this is one of the most perfect songs ever made uh and i would like to mention yeah. uh mary lou lord who at the time back in 1992 30 years ago um she and i were uh spending a tremendous amount of time together she introduced me to this song right around the time that i had bought the Ryko disc re-release of third sister lovers but before i had heard the first album all the rock and roll self-mythologizing very smartly already in place like that line about tell him what we said about painted black it's very smart there's a kid writing these lyrics but he's thinking about how to you know it's almost like you know like jeff tweedy trying to think around the time of being there like how can i create all these signifiers that put me right on the record shelf but chilton's doing that like decades earlier well, and it's written from the perspective of a 13-year-old boy, and right. uh, but it's not, you know, there's, it's not, well, I guess there are some, maybe some cliches in it, but that, it's all deliberate, and there's a, definitely a charm to it. Could these be, like, the most beautifully recorded guitars in rock history? Seriously, like, they you know, just, you know. I was going to ask you, have you ever heard of uh, a guy called, uh, his name's Gimmer Nicholson? Yes. How do I know that name? How do I know that name? Well, he um, recorded an album in 68 um, 
an instrumental album um, that remained unreleased for over 10 years, but it made the rounds in Memphis and, you know, the big star guys heard it. And um, it was influential on the sound of this of this first record. Um, Currently it's, it's, writing down. Yeah, I write, the, I write this shit down, it gets done. So I'm going to be listening to that as a come down from the intensity of this experience. I recommend that to anybody who's listening and is a fan of of, of Big Star and yeah the production of the stuff and the, the the sound of those acoustic guitars because they it was you'll definitely hear the uh, how they were inspired by it. Um, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. That's another one yeah, you can the, easily find on Spotify. The clarity uh, and the man, the, you know, there's a lot of high end. It feels like they were able to capture that that uh, a lot of people don't somehow get access to sonically don't really yeah. know why but yeah it is really some of the like for example the acoustic guitar on watch the sunrise uh, they're able to get a tone on there that i'm not very familiar with on other recordings well i think that was all deliberate um you know i'm not an engineer by any stretch um but from what i gather is that what they were trying to do is they, they purposely made it have a lot of high end because knowing that it'll be played on, if it was playing on the radio, which that was the goal, that it would chop off some of that high end. Right, right. Um, so, it, I mean, it was an album literally made to be played on the radio. Yeah, very wishful thinking. Yeah, um, yeah. Don't Lie to Me is next, and that's a sick rocker, totally ferocious. Yeah. You know, probably their most ferocious rocker. I love when the double tracked vocals get um, when it's uh, when it's off sync because he's so oh, fucking yeah. fired up. That section right there is phenomenal. I've always loved it. I um, love that. It reminds me of some of the early Beatles recordings too, where they're not singing exactly in sync. I mean, yeah, that's a co-lead vocal by Chris and Alex, and uh, I guess behind the scenes, you know, Chris was really pushing Alex to sing with with force on that one and uh you know it really comes across and it's just it's such a nice melding of their both their voices i mean i guess chris is, stands out a bit more um but uh yeah it just brings to mind you know, like those late period beatles rockers and i, th I think some of those licks were probably stolen from a uh, uh, lennon's cold turkey okay the india song i really have always loved it's always been one of my favorite songs on the record uh and i love how it digs digs in hard with the mel melancholic introspection it's sort of a tip of the hat to what's coming on side two which is extremely introspective but um it always affected me regardless all the flutes no yeah it tickles it tickles all the you know uh you know all the patches of my scrotum that need to be musical <laughs> I, I do, I do like the Mellotron. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for Mellotron. Um, yeah, yeah, that's I love that stuff. I mean, it, that that is cool. Um, every, 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 even all the shitty songs on the Moody Blues records from '67 to '72 are great. Um, all right, side well, two. Can, sorry, I just want to say one more thing because it'll yeah. make you feel maybe a bit vindicated by this. Is that um, there was talk of Andy, who, who I don't know if we said wrote and sang this song, um, launching a solo career based based off of this song, um, which caused you know friction within the band, um, especially once it failed. You know, Chris Chris was not not too happy with the thought of Andy being off of a, a solo career. What a career. strange. What is of all the of all four people to focus on him, especially because his commitment to music, uh, just in general, was wavering from the outset. Side two, 
a very different side, a very different feel to it. Uh, if you're a fan of the album as a journey that takes you from one place to another, this is a great album side. Um, so when my baby's beside me, which uh, I don't know how this was the single, it, to me, it's the worst song on the album. No way. Look, look, I don't think it's a bad song. I just think it. I, I think it's only very good. Uh, I do fucking love how it ends, but it's not my favorite song on the album. Uh, well, let's just say too, this is the first rocker that Alex sings by himself uh, on the record. Um, uh, I just love the song. I love that little rave up uh, mid song uh, section. I think that's really great. I just think it's a really like strong upbeat rocker well let me tell you this too like alex didn't play many big star songs solo and um he would pretty much just play in the street and september girls sometimes when i would see him but he played this once and i've never seen more people happy i don't think in my life like it was uh, that has nothing to do with really this album or or, or you i'd know, be the only guy the standing album. there weeping <laughs> <laughs> Why is he playing this crap song? Yeah, yeah. I did once heckle Arthur Lee. Um, I've heard you're quite the heckler, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I used to like that more. Now now it's not a good look on a 50-year-old. Well, what did you uh, what did you uh say to Ar- Arthur Lee? Well, he played for like 15 minutes and uh then was like, "Thank you, good night." And everyone was treating him like the venerable legend, but I was thinking of the money I just spent. And I said, uh, yeah. "I want my 6 bucks back, you has been." And uh <laughs> he stumbled on an apology and, you know, half-heartedly put his guitar strap back on, and uh I was responsible for what had to have been the worst closer of all time. Uh, it was a 25-minute rendition of Hey Joe that was the definition of superfluous. So then after my bit, when my baby's beside me, we have My Life is Right. Uh, and so begins the long emotional conclusion to the record. And all these songs feel of a piece. My Life is Right is a masterwork. I love it. Yeah, and I think it pairs well too with my uh, when my baby's beside me. There's, um, they're both ultimately you know positive songs about the impact of uh, significant others, and uh, the, and they'll both you know speak to uh, uh, you know the darkness in life. You know, because it seems like there yeah. can't be a, there can't be just a, a positive big star song. There has to has to be some darkness, right. yes. you know, always, in there. Um, always fold in uh, the darkness. It also flows very nicely into "Give Me Another Chance," which is a Chilton song, and. Um, uh, this song is just gorgeous. First of all, those chord changes, uh, just heartbreakers. And some of the lyrics in here, you know, it's so hard just to say alive each day. I really can't go on this way. Hold on. I mean, come on. This yeah, song is yeah. so beautiful. So stunningly emotional and open poured. Um, it, it's one of my favorites on the record and always has been. Yeah, and those uh, the layered vocals with the Mellotron. It's uh, yeah, 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 just incredible. And so this is like to the the beginning of the just the acoustic bass song, Sands Drums. That so we're we're in a run now, starting of a run of uh, of No Jody. Um, yeah. So there's kind of more of like a, a folk maybe influence on uh, uh, on these remaining tracks. Um, right. This is an album too that was really labored over for a long time. Uh, yeah. Chris, you know, seemingly couldn't let it go. He he tinkered with it off and on for, I think, uh, uh, around a year. They spent all, all together working on this album, and um, 
you know, a, a lot of times when records are when records are labor, labored over, they don't in the end don't sound they sound like it. They don't sound that good, but this right. is obviously not the case with this one. Right. Um, try again. This one kills me every last time, and the pensive, empathetic slide guitar work that traces its way through the song is perfection. And then watch the sunrise. Probably my favorite song on the record. I get chills. Nice. Um, you know, in the two seconds of silence between Try Again and, and Watch the Sunrise, right before those chords come in all, all hard like that, uh, I always get chills down my spine. Uh, you know, the the sense of wonderment and the, the grasp of, of the beauty of life. Um, you know, you, you I, I feel that every time I hear those opening strums without even hearing the lyrics. Yeah, I love that. And then uh, at the very end, a marriage of our two ta- of our two main talents, Bell and Chilton together. Uh, St. One hundred six. I don't even know how to say it. How do you say that? I don't either. You know, it's Ever- weird. You know, I don't know if you know the where this title came from. Um, I don't. But so the album took so long to come out that the band members often joked that it would be bootleg before an official release, and that the title of of uh, the bootleg would be ST One Hundred Over Six. Now, what that means, I I have no idea. Um, it was some sort of in joke that they must have that only they know. Um, but so that's it's, that's it's barely a song. I mean, you can't really even consider it a song. It's like a it's it's sort of a weirdo outro. I think of it as there because you know because they're all. They're all singing on it. Um, right. the, the instrumentation is very sparse, like I'm because. Um, but yeah, it's it's a short one. It's just kind of like a little outro almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it is it is kind of a nice low key way to, to end the album, and it, it yeah it kind of works with that uh, you know uh, post when my baby's beside me tracks on on side right. two. You know it works it works well there. Um, so for for number one record, the confluence of my personal life. And the bright, shiny positivity of this record could not have dovetailed any better. Its appearance in my life was perfectly timed from the good Lord up above. If you believe in that thing, if not, then that bad boy down below. One of the greatest albums of all time fraught with all kinds of meaning for me. And of course, we touched on the sparkling, pristine production. This is a hard five, ladies and gentlemen. Dave, um, just so I can, you know, maybe uh, uh, stay in your good grace, graces, I'm going 4.95. <laughs> you scumbag. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. All right, so Stax proved com- unable to either promote or distribute the record uh, with with any degree of financial success. Uh, and And... When the when the band tried itself to get airplay to generate interest, fans couldn't even buy it because Stacks couldn't make it available in a lot of stores. So yeah, they yeah the only copies people were able to find were were promo copies in stores, which is crazy. So yeah. Stacks was trying to improve uh, the abil- the availability of what they had. So they signed a deal with Columbia. Uh, who obviously were successful distributors in the U.S., and it made Columbia uh, responsible for all of Stacks. But Columbia had no interest in dealing with with the independent distributors previously used by Stacks, and re- they removed even the existing copies of Number One Record from the stores. 
Oh, geez, I no, never, I never heard that part of the story. Yeah, they got, they got royally screwed on that. Well, um, I think the only store you can really find them, at, the record stores you can find them in, were in Memphis. And but, you know, that, that's another part of the story too, is that Memphis was pretty ambivalent about Big Star. Um, so, you know, even there, there was no hometown love even for the band. Um, but you know, th- there's a, there's a lot of speculation about why the record failed, um, and there's a number of things you can't talk about other than distribution. But of course, that was a huge part of it because, yeah, they did get radio airplay in a lot of markets, um, but no one could buy the record. A lot a lot of fans uh, resorted to just uh, writing Ardent directly to get to get copies of the album because um, that's because they couldn't find them in stores. Um, but you know, also the band did not really support the record with a lot of live dates. I think. The original Big right. Star only only played about, about ten dates uh, total. Like uh, Chris, during this period, got intense stage fright and just um, really hated performing um, for some reason during this period. Um, and you know, a lot of people don't realize this, and I don't even think I was cognizant of it. Chris was out of the band by the end of the year. Yeah, he he was devastated. Um, he put everything into this into the into number one record and its failure just uh i don't i don't know that he ever recovered from it i i, I don't it sounds like he didn't i mean i i w- i don't know if i would have i mean yeah it seemed pretty obvious that the rest that the record was destined for success so when something is destined for success and it doesn't uh and it doesn't make it um there was no like you know like maybe this will do well when you hear it it's like yeah it's a classic so it's just it's sad because this is a guy who and we'll touch on this in a bit as well psychologically was a very delicate human being so let's talk about so five songs that are on the box set which is called keep keep an eye on the sky that is that are worth talking about uh just for your own sake and the sanity of everyone listening to this we're not going to talk about alternate mixes alternate versions but these are different songs that are worth talking about that never made it on the records first song there was a light uh this is a demo kind of slow and turgid uh an example lyric that really sums it all up spend it all my time waiting to die it's just no use um yeah so we're basically here at the first record and leaping over two hurdles and smacking right square in the middle of sister lovers territory and this is one of the songs so when when the bell chilton partnership ended when chris left the band they had had a handful of songs and they divided them up so this is one of them um you know people will know the song from chris bell's version so this is one of the songs that chris took with him though yeah there is this big star demo that exists so i'm not sure exactly when they divided up the songs um but it's it's weird to hear alex sing the song that the you know the chris version is so uh, you know you're so familiar with um uh, you know um but the, the, there's gorgeous harmonies on here um and i think alex vocal is more in, more convincing than chris's actually but you know chris's version is more produced and, and it sounds better yeah yeah it's a good song. I wouldn't say and, it's a great song, but it's a good one. Yeah, and so is the I Got Kind of Lost, the next one, which is also Yeah, a I song. Got Kind of Lost is yeah. cool. I mean, definitely sloppy and definitely of demo quality, but as a song, it seems like a perfect 50-50 meld of the introspective and the rockin' sides of the band. Yeah, and it's... it's I think the lyric, especially as a Chris lyric, you know, like, I can't believe I'm on my own, seems to speak of, you know, him leaving Big Star so soon. Um, and... Uh, 
I, th- I think Chris's version is a lot better. Um, but, you know, again, this is just a big star demo, so it's not a finalized version. But I, I can right. imagine the sort of song on Radio City. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Motel Blues is next. And I'm not going to put this version on the playlist. I've always preferred the live version. Yes, the uh, live version is way better. Yeah, it is. Um, it's just not as uh, th- that is the ultimate affecting version. Uh, you know, when he yeah. gets to the end and he sings "Save My Life," I really believe him on the live version. No, yeah, and we shall say it's a Loudon Wainwright song. It's a cover, and Loudon's version is not nearly as good as Big Star's. The live, the live. That's pretty much the highlight of that live album is that version of Motel Blues. It totally is. It, it really is. Um, the next. The next one is my favorite. Gone with the Light has a, a kind of a Zep, that's the way, acoustic strummer vibe to it, speaking of Zep 3 being recorded at Arden. Um, and then a very amusing lurch into the opening strains of Watch the Sunrise. I think it's a decent song, not quite up to the level of the other Bell uh, Chilton compositions on number one record. But yeah, the end of the song has the music that was ultimately, that was ultimately used for the intro of Watch the Sunrise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the worst of it, Country Morn. I mean, this is interesting, like, like Watch the Sunrise, but with uh, but a, a much shittier version because the melody just wasn't there yet. So the backing yeah. track to me sounds identical. I think uh, you're. I think it is. Yeah. But the top line is just all screwy and incomplete. Uh, so before the end of 1972, Bell was out of the band. He spent time in the hospital. Uh, actually, he spent time in hospital. In hospital sounds like uh, somebody's having a nervous breakdown. Right. If you take out the word the. Um, he was under psychiatric care. And this, uh, Chris was a wounded soul. He was a devout religious soul who was struggling with being gay. This was not a good time for him by all accounts. There was a lot of fighting, drugs, drinking, all the rest of it. Well, that's so still he, sort of up to de- up up uh, up to debate, really. Like if he was if he was if he was gay or not. Like his, no one really knows. He never really talked about it with anybody. And like to this day, his family is really still sort. And understandably, because it's his sexuality, and he's gone and can't talk about it. But it is so. It is pretty much assumed that he was. And yeah, also wrestled with for years. It's really just assumed. I, it, it's, it was never yeah. really confirmed by anyone, I don't think. But um, it certainly it seems that way. And of course, we should say there's nothing wrong with that. But at the time, you know, it, it was hard to be a homosexual. You know, living in the South in the you know early '70s. You know, it was it was yeah. difficult. So I think yeah, that added to his problems, um, not yeah. being able to really like, maybe deal with that. You know. All right. So. What happened was uh, his uh, Chris's brother David recognized that there was a down, downward spiral going on, and he got Chris the hell out of Dodge. So he went to Europe. He did some gigging. He met Jeff Emmerich and Paul McCartney. Uh, Emmerich actually wound up mixing "I Am the Cosmos," uh, but Bell wound up back in Memphis, working at his family's fast food chain. He formed a new band. Things were apparently going well, and then one night, driving home alone from a late rehearsal a couple nights after Christmas in 78, he hit a telephone pole and died instantly, Um, and he was 27. His his solo work, uh, except for I Am the Cosmos itself, the song, went unreleased until 1992. And unfortunately, that's all we have of Chris Bell. Uh, He's going to appear through 
uh, the rest of the story, but we've heard mostly what we're going to hear from him. Yeah. Phase two, what's going on? The last vestiges of wishful thinking, 1973 to 74. So now we're at uh, Radio City, 1974. So now there's tension in the band, Bart, because this record, which couldn't fail, failed. So there was actual physical fighting between some of the members. Um, and then in, in November 72, Bell quit. So uh, work continued on songs for the second album. So uh, in late 72, so again, we're talking like days or weeks after he initially quit. Uh, Bell quit the band again. And by the end of the year, Big Star had disbanded. Do they continue as a band? Or do they fragment into a million pieces and never get it together for another LP? Guess you'll just have to tune in and find out on Discography, seeing as that information does not exist in any form elsewhere. See you next week on Discography. Discography.